What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, today we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. We're also up on YouTube. If you haven't come and check us out on YouTube, come and check us out on YouTube for the full hand gesture, facial expression experience, and cool. So let's jump into this episode. We're going to get through as many of these as we can in like 20, 30 minutes. We'll see how it goes. First question is from Tranam Gupta, and she asks, how to decide when to deload? Full disclosure, I have a full deload podcast. I'll link in the description. Definitely a deep dive. If you're looking for something a little bit more in depth, go check that out. The short answer here would be two to four main factors. Let's say the first being performance decrement. I mean, if you could keep progressing forever, you would, right? I mean, if you could just keep doing more and more and more without ever deloading, you would. And so the big, huge main red flag that I would say, okay, if this has happened to you, you almost certainly need to deload would be having consistent performance uh, decrements. So your performance is actually going down, regressions. Um, and I don't mean the type of regression where it's like, hey, last week I did eight, this week I did seven, so I need a deload, right? It's like, we need to see enough of a performance decrement that can't be explained by acute factors. Like, oh, I didn't sleep as well last night or I didn't have my pre-workout meal or my pre-workout or I'm not as hydrated or I'm stressed out or I'm working out at a different time. Like we need enough of a performance decrement that we can't, uh, uh, you know, say that it was these acute factors. And usually what I'd say is at least two consecutive workouts where you see a regression. Now, the irony is that like, I've been training for 12 years for hypertrophy. It's rare that that happens. It's actually rare that you see severe performance decrements that indicate time for a deload. And in my case, in my opinion, that scenario will be preceded by some of the biofeedback changes that we see, whether that's high amount of irritability, anxiety towards your workout, low motivation to train. Maybe it's cortisol dysregulation that's causing sleep disturbances. I know personally for me that that is one that I feel very tangibly. I start waking up at three or four in the morning, wide awake when normally that you know wouldn't happen until a seven to nine in the morning. Um, and so some of those more subjective biofeedback things, low motivation to train, irritability, sleep disruption, so a little bit more of like anxiety towards your workouts. Those can be good indicators that maybe it's time to consider deloading, but we have to look at all of these things in context. If you're still progressing really well and you have one night of bad sleep, you probably don't need to deload. If performance is stagnating, workouts are super hard, you're five weeks into your program, you're having the occasional sleep disruption, maybe a little bit more irritability, maybe overlapping soreness, you take all of those factors into account, maybe it's time to deload. The truth is, most people are pretty shitty at assessing their own biofeedback. That's serious. Like most of us aren't very in tune with what's going on. So I'm not gonna have a big discussion now. Of should you pre-plan the deload or auto-regulate them, kind of take them as they come. But this is one of the reasons that pre-planning them can be helpful, kind of taking this off your plate and saying, hey, every sixth week, I'm gonna take a deload so that I don't get to a point where I'm having consistent sleep disturbances or I'm having joint pain or I'm having this irritability, this anxiety towards my workouts. And so that can be one way to kind of almost avoid this happening. Cool. Next question is from Best Tammy at 50, and she asks, are insulin spikes causes of chronic illnesses? Why is there a debate on this? I actually don't think there's a debate on this, but um, this is a common issue of taking an acute physiological response, insulin spike, blood sugar spike, and extrapolating it to a long-term health outcome, just like all-cause mortality, whatever. Um, what we do know is that having chronically high blood sugar, chronically high levels of insulin associated with bad things is not good. Let's just keep it simple. It's not good. And what the low carb crowd, let's say, has done is say, okay, we don't we won't, we don't want to have high amounts of blood sugar all the time. We don't want to have high insulin all the time. So let's just never eat carbohydrates because carbohydrates spike blood sugar and spike insulin. And it's a common case of like, okay, eating carbohydrates does raise blood sugar and does raise insulin. That is an acute physiological response. It just cannot be, in this case, extrapolated to long-term health outcomes because otherwise we would see everybody who's eating high carbohydrate would be dropping, you know, dropping dead sooner, would be, get, you know, contracting, you know, and you might say, okay, maybe there's an association here, but 
let's not get into the, the issues with some of that epidemiological research here, but you can't extrapolate an acute physiological response into a long-term health outcome. Another one would be like working out. If you look at somebody's blood after they work out, they're high in, their blood pressure's through the roof. You know, their inflammatory markers are super high. Some of their stress hormones are super high. It doesn't look like this was a good thing. And if you took that acute physiological response and extrapolated it into long-term health outcomes, you would say that exercising is bad. It's bad for you. It looks like it's bad for you. Look at me. It's not true. I mean, obviously we know that you can overdo exercise, sure, but exercise is a good thing, very generally speaking. And so you can't take acute physiological responses and extrapolate them into long-term health outcomes. You can't take what happens after you eat carbohydrates and assume that that's going to equate to long-term high or chronically high levels of insulin, high levels of blood sugar. This is not how that works. It's not what we see in the research. And it's just an attempt to kind of be a bit reductionist in the way that the body works and say, okay, if we don't want to have chronically high levels of blood sugar, we just never have blood sugar uh, elevate at all. Like eating carbohydrates, blood sugar going up, insulin going up, blood sugar going down is a totally normal physiological process that happens totally normal in most people. Um, Yeah, let's not beat that one too much to a dead horse here. Next question is from Lindsay on air. Explain finding new maintenance after a cut, want to eat more, but way less. So new maintenance would be lower couple of questions in here, a couple of things that we'll, we'll talk about. This idea of eat, like eating more but weighing less, not really a thing. If we look at what are the main factors that go into your maintenance calories, how many calories you can eat, it's going to be how large is your body and how much does that body move. And so if you're a smaller body now that moves the same amount, you're going to have a lower maintenance calories. You're not losing weight and then somehow hacking your maintenance calories up higher than they were before. If you lose weight, the only way that you're going to eat more than you did before you lost weight is if you're way more active now. Right? It means how large is this machine? How much energy does this machine need? It's going to come down to how big the machine is, how much the machine moves. That's it. Uh, maybe that's not it, but those are the two biggest factors here. And so you're not going to lose weight and then hack your maintenance up higher than it was before. Um, almost certainly not the case unless you're moving a whole lot more. Now, how to find new maintenance after a cut? Um, I have a reverse dieting episode that'll go into this a little bit more detail, but what I would do is I would find maintenance the same way you found it last time with your new body weight, with your new metrics. Um, And then I would assume maybe a five or 10% reduction via metabolic adaptation, not permanent, but at the moment, if you're at the tail end of a cut, uh, we do see a down regulation in neat. And so you might be, you you might have uh, some amount of metabolic adaptation where your metabolism is a little bit lower than what we would, what we would expect. And so my advice, generally speaking, is find your new expected maintenance, maybe kind of round down a little bit and, and kind of taking into account some of these metabolic adaptations and then maybe jump 80% of the way there. I mean, there's no reason to be reverse dieting super slowly. There is not. Absolutely, there's no physiological advantage to going slow. Get yourself a big chunk of calories back so that you feel better, so you can get back on the track to getting to maintenance, you know, maintaining weight loss, not staying in a deficit longer than you're supposed to. So calculate your new maintenance, assume a little bit of metabolic adaptation, just round down a little bit, and then jump almost all the way there and then from there, if you want to go slow and kind of explore, you know, what uh, what calorie amount, because again, your expected maintenance that you kind of set out with is still just an educated guess. And so we're not really sure. And so you can go slow from there. Next question is from Run Pose Lift. And she asks, realistic fat loss outcomes. We can't all look like bikini competitors. So what to do? First of all, I don't think most people should be aspiring to look like a bikini competitor. I think bikini competitors will tell you that bikini competitors who look like bikini competitors on stage feel like absolute dog shit. And so that pursuit of looking that way, like somebody does on stage, not the thing that I would recommend pursuing. You just don't feel very good. But um, in any case, I have an overwhelming feeling 
this might answer the question, it might not, but immediately when I read this question, I have only one feeling that your goal is to live a lifestyle you enjoy in a body that you enjoy. Lifestyle you enjoy in a body you enjoy. And that's gonna look different for everybody because everyone has a certain amount of lifestyle that they want, a certain type of lifestyle that they want that may be more or less conducive to being lean, let's say. Um, Your only goal is to ask yourself, what is the life that I wanna live? Like your goal is not to achieve your best physique. The goal is to achieve your best life. Your best life probably isn't your leanest body. It's probably a couple extra pounds with a a couple hundred extra calories. And so, you know, realistic fat loss outcomes, you need to decide at what level of leanness, like how lean can I be and still have the lifestyle I want? Now that that isn't the be all end all. The goal is not fucking how much leanness can I shove into my body or how much leanness can I shove into my lifestyle? That's not the goal. The goal is to have your best life. What does your best life look like? It looks like a lifestyle that you enjoy in a body that you enjoy. That's it. And so that might be different for everybody. Some people are gonna find that that's gonna be a little bit leaner than somebody else because their lifestyle and that their preferences of those trade-offs are different. I know I've been 30 pounds heavier than I am right now. I know I've also been 20 pounds lighter than I am right now in the last five years, let's say. And I know that neither of those is that for me. Neither of those is my best life in my happiest body. Being super, super lean, I looked insane. It was shredded. It was, it was cool in that way. But the lifestyle that I had at that moment fucking sucked. I mean, I was... Not only the lifestyle, but how I felt was terrible. And me being, let's say, I was a 26 pounds heavier than I am right now also wasn't. Yeah, maybe, you know, I had a lot of food freedom because I was eating a lot of calories, but I was also kind of exhausted going up the steps and playing soccer, I was super fatigued. And so that also wasn't my best balance of, of, of lifestyle and the body that I had. And so, you know, the goal isn't to look as lean as possible. I mean, it might be your goal. Um, probably not the best goal, but uh, you know, we can't all look like bikini competitors, so what to do? What to do is to find out, hey, what does your best life look like? Does your best life look like being a bikini competitor? Probably not. Um, does your best life look as, you know, does your best life involve being as lean as humanly possible? Probably not. And so what does your best life look like? Does it look like, you know, what I'm gonna make stuff up, but does it look like being a certain level of body fat with a certain workout routine? And is that on the spectrum, you know, just, just don't, make this all about what is the best body I can have? Because if your pursuit is to have the quote best or leanest body that you can have, it's gonna take a lot of lifestyle trade-offs and we need to be factoring both of these things. It's about finding a body that you like that can live a lifestyle that you like. Uh, That balance is gonna be different for everybody, but I can almost guarantee for most people, it's not the leanest body. It's not having a six pack. It's some balance of, you know, a couple extra pounds and a couple hundred extra calories. Alrighty, next question is from JPF, ooh, JP Fit Coach. Starting deficit, drop 15 to 20 carbs per week or go big with 300 to 500 calories right away? Couple things. One, I don't know if, I'm not a huge advocate of the average person tracking all the macros and then being super meticulous about which macros they're dropping. That to me is a little bit of data overload, a little bit of being too meticulous for the, like, the return in terms of benefit you get from being that meticulous, I think you could just say, hey, I'm gonna drop a certain number of calories and I'm probably gonna drop those calories from some combination of carbs and fats because I'm probably gonna be counting protein. So I'm not a huge fan of counting all the macros and being that meticulous. Um, what I would say is that let's change the question to should I start with a smaller deficit and creep my way down or should I jump into a significant deficit, let's say. And three to 500 calories I actually think is a a fairly moderate calorie deficit. But let's say, should I go small or should I go big? My take on that would be whatever you set your calories to as your first guess for being in a calorie deficit, in my opinion, should be at least big enough to get tangible results on a week-to-week basis. The worst thing or 
something I wouldn't want for most people is being in the fat loss mindset without actually losing fat. Um, assuming that they're, you know, like th there's physiological things that happen when you're in deficit. There's stressors that happen physiologically from actually physically having less food. There's also psychological fatigue that happens from just trying to lose fat. And so the, you know, a scenario I wouldn't want you to be in is getting that psychological fatigue of trying to lose fat, being in the fat loss mindset, being in a restricted mindset to some degree without actually getting the benefits. And so I would want you to choose a deficit that's large enough for you to at least get tangible results week to week. Tangible, probably meaning at least half a pound a week, right? If it's if you're losing a quarter pound a week, that could easily be washed out for three or four weeks by water rate. And you might not have any actual return on that investment. Now you could say, oh, it's, it's happening in the background. Listen, not everybody can work and work and work and do something without actually getting the feedback. It is, the research does support that feedback of actually seeing the scale go down be a motivating factor, a factor that actually improves adherence. And so I would want people to be in enough of a deficit where they're able to get that feedback. Whether that's a you know 300 calorie deficit, a 500 calorie deficit, 700 calorie deficit, it's gonna depend on you know personality differences, also the, the amount of calories that you're currently eating, what your lifestyle is like. And so if it's like, hey, we're gonna go really small deficit and creep our way down really slowly or jump right into a significant deficit, I would jump right into a significant, significant deficit and what I mean by significant is just enough to see tangible changes week to week so that you get fucking feedback that this is working. What are you, uh, dropping 15 carbs per week, man, that's 60 calories. This is not a deficit. Your body will adapt to that in five minutes. And so, you know, it's gonna take you like four weeks before you actually start to see anything. Four weeks without seeing something, I wouldn't be able to do that. So that's my advice. How much time we had? 13 minutes, we got time, cool. Uh, next question is from Sam Viveros. Main issues you see when people bulk. Well, what would some of the issues of, that people could encounter bulking? What would some of those even be? Uh, I guess one of them could be going too slow. I don't really see that as a problem though. Like what's the rush? Uh, and on average going slower in a bulk is better because we do have something like a limit of muscle that we can gain and having a huge surplus and going super fast versus going relatively slowly, you're just gaining extra fat. So I don't think the going slow thing is even a big deal at all. And it's definitely not something that I see. You're asking me, what are the things that I see? I don't see people going too slow. Frankly, going slow is a good idea. People are like, you should lean bulk. I fucking hate that term because all bulking should be done relatively slowly. So you're not gaining excess body fat. Uh, I guess another issue you could have is going too fast. Totally. You could say, oh, I'm, I'm, your aim is to be in a 200 calorie surplus and you know, you don't accomplish that and you're in a 2000 calorie surplus. Yes, that is totally an issue. You will be gaining just a lot of excess body fat. So that is an issue. It's not necessarily one that I see very often, but it's certainly possible and can totally happen. Um, the funny part is the two issues I see are actually two opposites. One issue is <sighs> decreasing nutrition quality right away because now you're in this bulk mindset. You stop eating vegetables. You stop having fruits and, ve fruits and vegetables. You don't eat enough fiber. You know, all of a sudden the nutrition quality drops a bit. Now that might also coincide with going too high in calories, but sometimes I'll see people that are like, okay, I'm going into a bulk. All of a sudden they stop cooking a lot of their meals. They don't get that fiber content that they were getting from fruits and vegetables. Um, and that can just lead to you not feeling really great. And I think that that is one issue that I do see sometimes. Another issue is the opposite, actually, is you sticking too much to the kinds of foods that you were eating, let's say, in your cut. Um, you know, trying to trying to be in a calorie surplus with the kinds of foods that you were eating in a cut, just it almost always backfires where you're so full and it is actually difficult to eat enough calories. If you're increasing your calories by three, four, 500 over maintenance, and you're only trying to do that with like extra 0% Greek yogurt and blueberries and chicken and broccoli, like 
at some point, you're going to get to a point where you're like, I can't put down any more food because you're in this mindset of high volume, high satiety, low calorie food, liquid egg whites, broccoli, peppers, you know, 0% Greek yogurt, blueberries, like wasa crackers, like rice cakes. Like at some point, you're going to have to probably embrace some higher calorie foods. And maybe it's just the circle that, or the people that I've worked with, that's probably the actually the most common issue I see. Um, not that it happens a lot, but it's probably the most common of all these issues where it's people are still afraid to eat foods that they deem unhealthy, even though it would help them accomplish their goal of gaining weight, of being in a surplus. They're finding it difficult to be in a surplus because they're still trying to eat like they're in a deficit. Like you, you know, are afraid of having a glass of oil. Like if, some, if someone tells me they're so full and they can't hit their surplus calories, it is almost 100% fact that they're still demonizing certain foods and they're still afraid to eat. You know, if you, if, <laughs> you always have room for a PB&J. You always have room for a glass of milk and Oreos. The problem is you think that something bad is going to happen if you eat unhealthy, quote, unhealthy foods. And so as much as you know you could hit your your surplus calories, you're not doing because you're afraid to do it with unhealthy food. As if there's a difference between hit, you know, 300 calories of you being a 300 calorie surplus from Oreos and milk or 300 calorie surplus from chicken and broccoli. There isn't. There isn't a difference. Cool. Next question is from... Let's see here. A Quinn 1112. Why is it so easy to gain weight but so hard to lose it despite being healthy otherwise? Not really sure what the despite being healthy otherwise thing is, but why is it so easy to gain weight? It's easier to eat. I just like not super like you know the answer to this question. It's easier to gain weight because it's a, we we live in a we live in a food environment where we have really low cost, easily accessible, highly palatable, high calorie, low satiety foods. It's really difficult. It's very easy to eat an extra thousand calories, right? It's very easy to eat an extra thousand calories. It's very hard to maintain a calorie deficit for a long time. It's very easy to eat more. Um, it's, it's, you know this, it's very easy for you to eat more. It's way more difficult to actively eat less. You know, we live in a food environment where there's a lot of easily accessible, high palatable, low satiety, very delicious foods that are very easy to overeat. And so it's much easier to eat in a surplus than it is, it's much easier to gain weight sub, like unconsciously than it is to lose weight for sure. Next question is from A. Pridgey. Would it limit results in your program to do one day a week of hit or spinning or endurance running? Definitely not. Um, my group program is four times a week, hypertrophy style training. And if you do one day of hit or endurance training or running or spinning or something cardio-based, that will not ruin results. If you guys are thinking about doing a, doing a program, could be my program, could be anything else, and then also doing something on top of that, and you're thinking, is that too much? One of the big ways to know if it's too much is if you're unable to progress in that thing. And so if you are progressing really well in my program four days a week, and all of a sudden you decide to add two days of CrossFit, what's gonna what you're gonna find is that in the four days of hypertrophy training that you were doing, where you might have been progressing, that progression will get slower because you are not recovering in time to perform and adapt each week. And so if you start doing uh, spinning or endurance running or hit, and you're performance in my program still continues to go up, then you know that you're able to recover and you're able to adapt and you're able to actually keep progressing. But if you find that you start to incorporate XYZ and it causes your ability to progress in the thing that you actually want to progress in, starts to inhibit that ability to progress, then you know that it's actually inhibiting your progress. Cool, cool. Next question, Blodgett, Angela. Difference or best one to use, whey or casein protein? So they're both, they're both dairy derivatives. The main difference between them, they're both complete proteins. They're both high quality proteins. 
The main difference between them is whey digests very quickly and casein digests very slowly. Now, I, you know, we used to think, oh, you, after your workout, you got to have whey because super fast digesting gets the, you know, uh, you know, the anabolic window. We need to get some protein in. It has to digest quickly. And I don't think that that's such a bad thing. I think whey after the workout is just fine. It's good. It's great. Wonderful protein. Um, and that we used to think, oh, casein before you go to bed so you can drip protein to the muscles while you sleep because it digests very slowly. At the end of the day, I don't think the your results are going to be drastically different if you use one versus the other. So I wouldn't make this out to be something that's very important. Um, maybe the biggest difference, in my opinion, between the two is if you find one of them way more satiating than the other. And so you might find that casein, casein is a little bit thicker, it's a little bit grainier, um, and it can be a little bit more satiating. And I think that is the most meaningful difference. Yes, casein super slow digesting, way super fast digesting. It's fun to talk about, but I don't think it actually has a meaningful effect on your results. What might actually be meaningful is the difference in satiety. You might find whey shakes not sa not satiating. You might find casein way more satiating, and that to me would be meaningful if you're feeling that. Cool. Let's do two more here. El Breezy, nineteen oh nine, forty five degree hip extension, better than glute bridge or versus glute bridge, whatever. Is it okay to do hip extension instead of glute bridge because I hate setting up glute bridge? Is it okay? These questions of is it okay? Always like I'm always like kind of like. Well, is it optimal is the question you want to ask. Is it okay? Totally fine. Can you build a great pair of glutes and hamstrings doing hip extension and, and instead of glute bridge? Absolutely, yes. Um, they are different though. One of them trains hip extension with the knees more straight, um, with the knees more extended and sometimes totally straight, right? And the other one trains hip extension with the knees bent. And so you're going to get less hamstring involvement in a glute bridge, more hamstring involvement in a 45 degree hip extension. I think 45 to 45 degree hip extension is a wonderful exercise. Totally great. Great for the glutes. Great for the hams. Um, it's great for training them in the short position, which again is why these exercises can be interchangeable, quote unquote, sometimes because they both train the short position. But is it optimal to never do bridges? Probably not. But could you get away with not doing them and instead doing 45 degree hip extension? Absolutely. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Um, I don't think I have much to add there. I think you could absolutely get away with doing this, but would it be optimal to avoid utilizing a really good exercise? Probably not, no. All right, let's do one more here. Um, the macro mom, uh, two-parter here. Um, my or Alcohol, my client fits it in his macros, but I'm looking for a way to tell them to stop. He sees body weight is all over the place, but do you have it? But do you have any advice for me? Thank you. Um, I have a whole podcast about alcohol with Danny Matranga, one of my favorite episodes. Definitely click the link in the description. Check that one out. Um, if a client, technically speaking, let's just talk technically for a second. We'll talk more hypothetically. Technically, if your client's fitting it into his macros, then he's going to get the same results as whether he was eating, uh, drinking alcohol or not drinking alcohol. Um, and, and I say that technically because a lot of times people who are tr really trying to fit as much alcohol as they can into their plan, it's not really a good recipe for success. Most of them don't actually find that that's really feasible, frankly. Um, basically because alcohol is not very satiating and drunk you really wants cheese fries. And so I don't think that that's a great strategy for him to try and fill a lot of alcohol into his macros. But if you told me that, you know, he's better able to live a life that he enjoys and be adherent to his macros if he has a drink and fits it into his calories, I'd be totally fine with that. Your comment about him seeing his body weight all over the place is going to come down to whether or not he's actually hitting his macros or not. Like you said, my client fits it in his macros. If he's fitting in his macros, his body weight's not going to be all over the place. It's going to be doing whatever his calories are, you know, kind of having an effect on his body. If he's in a calorie deficit, he's going to lose weight. And so if his body weight is all over the place, my guess is that he's not actually fitting into his macros adequately. He's not actually hitting his calories. And that might be then a reason to, to at least 
look at the fact that maybe alcohol is getting in the way of him doing that really, really well. Um, and so I don't think it's your job to tell them to stop. I think it's your job to kind of work with this person to assess if this habit is serving them and the greater goal that they have in this moment and beyond. You know, maybe sometimes it's a good idea to kind of turn down the alcohol dial in the pursuit of fat loss and then that maintenance kind of find a bit more of a balance. I think that that's fine. You know, your goals can change dependent, like the, the, the habits that you have can change a little bit based on the goal that you have. But um, if your client's fitting it into his macros, it's gonna be totally fine, 100%. But if trying to fit it into his macros is causing him to not hit his macros, uh, then I would absolutely look at that. All right, thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for asking a question. See you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.